Section six of Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal by Edmondo de Amicis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. December. The Trader. Thursday the first. My father wishes me to have some one of my schoolmates come to our house every holiday, or that I should go to see one of them, in order that I may gradually become friends with all of them. Sunday I shall go to walk with Votini, the well-dressed boy who is always brushing himself up, and who is so envious of De Rossi. In the meantime Garoffi came to the house to-day, that long, lank boy with the nose like an owl's beak and small, knavish eyes, which seem to be ferreting everywhere. He is the son of a grocer, and is a queer fellow. He is always counting the soldi in his pocket. He reckons them on his fingers very, very rapidly, and goes through some process of multiplication without any tables. And he hoards his money, and already has a book in the scholar's savings bank. He never spends a soldo, I am positive. And if he drops a centesimo under the benches, he is likely to hunt for it a week. He does as magpies do, so de Rossi says. Everything that he finds— Worn-out pens, postage stamps that have been used, pins, candle-ends, he picks up. He has been collecting postage stamps for more than two years now, and he already has hundreds of them from every country in a large album, which he will sell to a bookseller later on when he has got it quite full. Meanwhile, the bookseller gives him his copy-books because he takes a great many boys to the shop. In school he is always bartering. He affects sales of little articles every day, and gets up lotteries and exchanges— then he regrets the trade and wants his stuff back again. He buys for two and sells for four. He plays at pitchpenny and never loses. He sells old newspapers over again to the tobacconist, and he keeps a little blank book full of figures in which he sets down his transactions. At school he studies nothing but arithmetic, and if he desires the medal, it is only that he may have free entrance into the puppet show. But he pleases me. He amuses me. We played at keeping a market with weights and scales. He knows the exact price of everything. He understands weighing, and quickly makes handsome paper horns like shopkeepers. He declares that as soon as he has finished school he shall set up in business, in a new business which he has invented himself. He was very much pleased when I gave him some foreign postage stamps, and he informed me exactly how each one sold for collections. My father pretended to be reading the newspaper, but he listened to him, and was greatly diverted. His pockets are bulging, full of little wares, and he covers them up with a long black cloak, and always appears thoughtful and preoccupied with business, like a merchant. But the thing that has nearest his heart is his collection of postage stamps. This is his treasure, and he always speaks of it, as though he were going to get a fortune out of it. The boys accuse him of miserliness and usury. I do not know. I like him. He teaches me a great many things. He seems a man to me. Coretti, the son of the wood-merchant, said that Garoffi would not give him his postage stamps to save his mother's life. My father does not believe it. Wait a little before you condemn him, he said to me. He has this passion, but he has heart as well. Vanity, Monday the 5th Yesterday I went for a walk along the Rivoli Road with Votini and his father. As we were passing through the Dora Grossa Street, we saw Stardi, the boy who kicks at those who bother him, standing stiffly in front of the window of a bookshop, with his eyes fixed on a map, and no one knows how long he had been there, because he studies even in the street. 
He barely returned our salute, the rude fellow. Votini was well-dressed, even too much so. He had on Morocco boots embroidered in red, an embroidered coat, small silken tassels, a white beaver hat, and a watch, and he strutted. But his vanity was to come to a bad end this time. After having gone a tolerably long distance up the Rivoli road, leaving his father, who was walking slowly, a long way in the rear, we halted at a stone seat beside a modestly clad boy who appeared to be weary and moody, and who sat with a drooping head. A man who must have been his father was walking to and fro under the trees reading the newspaper. We sat down. Votini placed himself between me and the boy. All at once he recollected that he was well-dressed, and wanted to make his neighbor admire and envy him. He lifted one foot and said to me, "'Have you seen my officer's boots?' He said this in order to make the other boy look at them, but the latter paid no attention. Then he dropped his foot and showed me his silk tassels, glancing slyly at the boy the while, and said that these tassels did not please him, and that he wanted to have them changed to silver buttons. But the boy did not look at the tassels either." Then Votini fell to twirling his handsome white hat on the tip of his forefinger, but the boy, and it seemed as though he did it on purpose, did not deign even a glance at the hat. Votini, who began to be irritated, drew out his watch, opened it, and showed me the wheels, but the boy did not turn his head. "'Is it of silver gilt?' I asked him. "'No,' he replied, "'it is gold.' "'But not merely of gold,' I said. "'There must be some silver with it.' "'Why, no,' he retorted, and in order to compel the boy to look, he held the watch before his face and said to him, "'Say, look here. Isn't it true that it is entirely of gold?' The boy replied briefly, "'I don't know.' "'Oh! Oh!' exclaimed Votini, full of wrath. "'What pride!' As he was saying this, his father came up and heard him. He looked steadily at the lad for a moment, then said sharply to his son, "'Hold your tongue!' and bending down to his ear, he added, "'He is blind!' Votini sprang to his feet with a shudder, and stared the boy in the face. The latter's eyeballs were glassy, without expression, without sight. Votini stood humbled, speechless, with his eyes fixed on the ground. At length he stammered, "'I'm sorry, I did not know.' But the blind boy, who had understood it all, said, with a kind, sad smile, "'Oh, it's no matter.' "'Well,' Votini is vain, but his heart is not bad. He never laughed again during the whole of the walk. The First Snowstorm, Saturday the 10th Farewell walks to Rivoli. Here is the beautiful friend of the boys. Here is the first snow. Ever since yesterday evening it has been falling in thick flakes as large as gillyflowers. It was a pleasure this morning at school to see it beat against the panes and pile up on the window-sills. Even the master watched it and rubbed his hands, and all were glad when they thought of making snowballs, and of the ice which will come later, and of the hearth at home. Stardy, entirely absorbed in his lessons, and with his fists pressed to his temples, was the only one who paid no attention to it. What beauty! What a celebration there was when we left school! All danced down the streets, shouting and tossing their arms, catching up handfuls of snow and dashing about in it, like poodles in water. The umbrellas of the parents who were waiting outside were all white. The policeman's helmet was white. All our satchels were white in a few moments. Everyone appeared to be beside himself with joy, even Prokosi, the son of the blacksmith, that pale boy who never laughs. 
and Robetti, the lad who saved the little child from the omnibus, poor fellow, jumped about on his crutches. The Calabrian, who had never touched snow, made himself a little ball of it and began to eat it as though it had been a peach. Crossi, the son of the vegetable vendor, filled his satchel with it, and Muratorino made us burst with laughter when my father invited him to come to our house tomorrow. He had his mouth full of snow, and not daring either to spit it out or to swallow it, he stood there choking and staring at us, and made no answer. Even the schoolmistress came out of school on a run, laughing. But my mistress of the upper first, poor little thing, ran through the drizzling snow, covering her face with her green veil and coughing. Meanwhile, hundreds of girls from the neighboring schoolhouse passed by, screaming and frolicking on that white carpet and the masters and the beetles and the policemen shouted, Home! Home! swallowing flakes of snow and whitening their mustaches and beards. But they too laughed at this wild romp of the scholars as they celebrated the winter. You hail the arrival of winter, but there are boys who have neither clothes, nor shoes, nor fire. There are thousands of them who descend to their villages over a long road, carrying in hands bleeding from chilblains a bit of wood to warm the schoolroom. There are hundreds of schools almost buried in the snow, bare and dismal as caves, where the boys suffocate with smoke or chatter their teeth with cold, as they gaze in terror at the white flakes which descend unceasingly, which pile up constantly on their distant cabins threatened by avalanches. You rejoice in the winter, boys. Think of the thousands of creatures to whom winter brings misery and death. Your father. Mura Torino, the Little Mason the little mason came to-day, in a hunting-jacket, entirely dressed in the cast-off clothes of his father, which were still white with lime and plaster. My father was even more anxious than I that he should come. How much pleasure he gives us! No sooner had he entered than he pulled off his ragged cap, which was all soaked with snow, and thrust it into one of his pockets. He came forward with his listless gait, like a weary workman, turning his face as smooth as an apple, with its ball-like nose from side to side, and when he entered the dining-room he cast a glance round at the furniture, and fixed his eyes on a small picture of Rigoletto, a hunchbacked jester, and made a hare's face. It is impossible to keep from laughing when he makes that hare's face. We went to playing with bits of wood. He is good at making towers and bridges, which seem to stand as though by miracle, and he works at it quite seriously, with the patience of a man. Between one tower and another he told me about his family. They live in a garret. His father goes to the evening school to learn to read, and his mother is a washerwoman. And they must love him, of course, for he is clad like a poor boy, but he is well protected from the cold, with neatly mended clothes, and with his necktie nicely tied by his mother. His father, he told me, is a fine man, a giant, who has trouble in getting through doors but he is kind, and always calls his son's hair-face. The son, on the contrary, is rather small. At four o'clock we lunched on bread and goat's milk cheese, as we sat on the sofa, and when we rose I do not know why, but my father did not wish me to brush off the back, which the little mason had spotted with white from his jacket. He held my hand and then rubbed it off himself on the sly. While we were playing, the little mason lost a button from his hunting-jacket, and my mother sewed it on and he grew quite red and began to watch her so, in perfect amazement and confusion, holding his breath the while. Then we gave him some albums of caricatures to look at, and he, without being aware of it himself, imitated the grimaces of the faces there so well that even my father laughed. 
He was so much pleased when he went away that he forgot to put on his tattered cap, and when we reached the landing he made a hare's face at me once more in sign of his gratitude. His name is Antonio Rabucco, and he is eight years and eight months old. Do you know, my son, why I did not wish you to wipe off the sofa? Because to wipe it while your friend was looking on would have been almost the same as reproving him for having soiled it. And this was not well in the first place, because he did not do it intentionally, and in the next, because he did it with the clothes of his father, who had covered them with plaster while at work. And what comes from work is not dirt. It is dust, lime, varnish, whatever you like, but it is not dirt. Labor does not soil one. Never say of a laborer coming from his work, he is filthy. You should say, he has on his clothes the signs, the traces of his toil. Remember this. And you must love the little mason first because he is your comrade, and next because he is the son of a working man. Your father. A Snowball, Friday the 16th. And still it snows. A bad accident happened because of the snow this morning when we came out of school. A crowd of boys had no sooner got into the Corso than they began to throw balls of wet snow which make missiles as solid and heavy as stones. Many persons were passing along the sidewalks. A gentleman called out, Stop that, you little rascals! And just then a sharp cry arose from another part of the street, and we saw an old man who had lost his hat and was staggering about, covering his face with his hands, and beside him a boy who was shouting, Help! Help! People instantly ran from all directions. He had been struck in the eye with a ball. All the boys dispersed, fleeing like arrows. I was standing in front of the bookseller's shop, into which my father had gone, and I saw several of my schoolmates coming at a run, mingling with others near me, and pretending to be engaged in staring at the windows. There was Garone, with his penny-roll in his pocket, as usual, Coretti, Muratorino, and Garoffi, the boy with the postage-stamps. In the meantime a crowd had formed around the old man, and a policeman and others were running to and fro, threatening and demanding, Who was it? Who did it? Was it you? Tell me who did it! And they looked at the boy's hands to see whether they were wet with snow. Garoffi was standing beside me. I noticed that he was trembling all over, and that his face was as white as that of a corpse. Who was it? Who did it? the crowd continued to cry. Then I overheard Garoni say in a low voice to Garoffi, Come, give yourself up. It would be cowardly to allow anyone else to be arrested. But I did not do it on purpose, replied Garoffi, trembling like a leaf. No matter, do your duty, repeated Garone. But I have not the courage. Take courage, then. I will accompany you. And the policemen and the other people were crying more loudly than ever. Who was it? Who did it? One of his glasses had been driven into his eye. He has been blinded. The ruffians! I thought that Garoffi would fall to the earth. Come, said Garone, resolutely, I will defend you. And grasping him by the arm, he thrust him forward, supporting him as though he had been a sick man. The people saw and instantly understood, and several persons ran up with their fists raised, but Garone thrust himself between, crying, Do ten men of you set on one boy? Then they ceased and a policeman seized Garoffi by the hand and led him, pushing aside the crowd as he went, to a pastry-cook's shop, where the wounded man had been carried. On catching sight of him I suddenly recognized him as the old employee who lives on the fourth floor of our house with his grand-nephew. He was stretched out on a chair with a handkerchief over his eyes. "'I did not do it on purpose,' sobbed Garoffi, half dead with terror. "'I did not do it on purpose!' 
two or three persons thrust him violently into the shop, crying, "'Down to the earth! Beg his pardon!' and they threw him to the ground. But all at once two vigorous arms set him on his feet again, and a resolute voice said, "'No, gentlemen!' It was our principal, who had seen it all. "'Since he has had the courage to give himself up,' he added, "'no one has the right to humiliate him.' All stood silent. "'Ask his forgiveness,' said the principal to Garofi. Garofi, bursting into tears, embraced the old man's knees, and the latter, having felt for the boy's head with his hand, caressed his hair. Then all said, "'Go, boy, go return home.' And my father drew me out of the crowd, and said as we passed along the street, "'Enrico, would you have had the courage, under similar circumstances, to do your duty, to go and confess your fault?' I told him that I should. And he said, "'Give me your word, as a lad of heart and honour, that you would do it.' I give you my word, father. The Schoolmistresses, Saturday the 17th. Today, Garoffi stood in fear and dread of a severe punishment from the teacher, but the master did not appear, and as the assistant was also missing, Signora Cromi, the oldest of the schoolmistresses, came to teach the school. She has two grown-up children, and she has taught several women to read and write, who now come with their sons to the Baretti schoolhouse. She was sad to-day, because one of her sons is ill. No sooner had the boys caught sight of her than they began to make an uproar, but she said in a slow and calm tone, "'Respect my white hair. I am not only a school-teacher, I am also a mother.' And then no one dared to speak again in spite of that brazen face of Franti, who contented himself with jeering at her on the sly. Signora Delcati, my brother's teacher, was sent to take charge of Signora Cromi's class, and to Signora Delcati's was sent the teacher who is called the Little Nun, because she always dresses in dark colors with a black apron, and has a small white face, hair that is always smooth, very bright eyes, and a delicate voice that seems to be forever murmuring prayers. It is hard to understand, my mother says. She is so gentle and timid. With that thread of a voice, which is always even, which is hardly audible, and she never speaks loud, nor flies into a passion, but nevertheless she keeps the boys so quiet that you cannot hear them, and the most roguish bow their heads when she merely admonishes them with her finger, so that her school seems like a church, and it is for this reason also that she is called the little nun. But there is another one I like, the young mistress of the lower first, the girl with the rosy face, who has two pretty dimples in her cheeks, and who wears a large red feather on her little bonnet, and a small cross of yellow glass on her neck. She is always cheerful, and keeps her class cheerful. She is always calling out with that silvery voice of hers, which makes her seem to be singing, and tapping her little rod on the table, and clapping her hands to impose silence. When they come out of school she runs after one and another like a child, to bring them back into line. She pulls up the cape of one, and buttons the coat of another, so they may not take cold. She follows them even into the street, in order that they may not fall to quarrelling. She begs the parents not to whip them at home. She brings lozenges to those who have coughs. She lends her muff to those who are cold. And she is continually tormented by the smallest children, who caress her and demand kisses, and pull at her veil and mantle. But she lets them do it, and kisses them all with a smile, and returns home all rumpled, and with her throat all bare, panting and happy, with her beautiful dimples and her red feather. She is also the girl's drawing-teacher, and she supports her mother and her brother by her earnings. End of section 6